This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In Knoxville, Tennessee, a young woman and her new boyfriend left the house one night for a movie at a friend's house, but they never returned home. Soon after their disappearance, the community would be shocked by the discovery of the fate of this young couple and would make this case known as one of the most horrific crimes in Knoxville history. This is episode 46, The Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom Story. Hi, Amy. Hey, Megan. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Today's case is going to be a little bit different. As you probably noticed, I have Shannon Christian, but also Christopher Newsom in this episode. So we are introducing a male. The reason why is because Christopher Newsom is equally important. There is a level of victimization here that I don't think we should ignore, and I don't think it would have been fair to center on just the female victim. So Though, though we will focus a lot on her case, I think it's equally as important that we give him um, due attention. I agree. Thank you, Megan. Yeah, of course. But before we get to this case, and I have to tell you, Amy, this case, the only way I can describe it is devastating. Okay. But we will give a warning again. This is a very difficult episode. The Shanda Sharon one, I don't know if you recall, when I did that one, I said that I was a little bit haunted. I feel this one is is even worse to me. There are some very gruesome details. I'm not going to go into all of them because they're not all integral to the story, and I don't think every detail is necessary. Mm-hmm. But please be warned, this one's a hard one. Let's talk a little bit about Shannon Christian and Chris Newsom. Shannon Christian was a 21-year-old student at the University of Tennessee, and her father described her as a bubbly person who was also a daddy's girl. Her father, Gary Christian, is going to come to play a major role in her case. Chris Newsom was a 23-year-old former high school baseball player working as a carpenter. Um, he was still living at home with his parents. He was described as a really nice kid as well, responsible. These two were newly dating. They're really just normal kids who were loved by their friends and families. They were going to watch a movie that night, so there was some discrepancy about what they were going to do. At first, they were going to go to a party, but then I guess they decided not to. They had dinner, and then they were on their way to watch a movie at a friend's house. And this was the night of January 6, 2007. But they never made it to the friend's house. Shannon called her parents after midnight to let them know she'd be coming home soon. But in reality, that call wasn't made of Shannon's own volition, and she never did make it home. On this unfortunately fateful night for them, Shannon and Christian were abducted at gunpoint in an attempted carjacking. Shannon had a Toyota 4Runner that she loved. She kind of adorned it with stickers and, you know, made it her her own. And while they were in the parking lot of, I guess, the apartment complex of the friend's house where they were going to watch the movie, and she and Chris were giggling and hugging. Making out. I mean, they were. They were being newly, you know, couple. And I believe Shannon was actually sitting in her driver's seat and Chris was on the outside. I mean, they were just so into each other. They never saw this coming. They never saw two males who jumped out of a car with guns held right to their face and pushed them into the backseat of the Toyota 4Runner. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible story all around. 
The couple was brought back to a rental house on Chipman Avenue by three men because there was the two abductors, but then there was also a guy driving the car. Chris was brought into the house, but separated from Shannon. And then, though it is unclear exactly and by whose hands, Chris was brutally sodomized by an object and a person. So he was raped, his legs and hands tied behind his back, a sock shoved in his mouth, a sweatshirt wrapped around his face. After this brutal attack happened on him or after the, after the sexual attack, he was forced to walk to his death barefoot along nearby railroad tracks where his attackers then shot him in the back, paralyzing him in a final shot in his neck and head. Afterwards, they set his body on fire. Oh, jeez. This is brutal. And I have to tell you, I mean, Shannon probably had it a lot worse. So upsetting, okay? Shannon Christian was kept alive for a while in the Chipman house where she was raped orally, vaginally, and rectally by multiple assailants. Shannon was raped so violently that the mucous membrane in her mouth was damaged, and she had severe injuries as well to her genital area, indicating that someone had kicked her or used an object. There was blood pooling in the genital area, so that was, must have been extremely painful, unfortunately. She was beaten in the head, and she was choked at some point, but that did not kill her. It severely injured her. Her assailants then poured bleach down her throat and scrubbed her skin with it in an attempt to remove DNA evidence. What? She didn't die, though, from that. Finally, Shannon Christian was tied up in a fetal position, her body bruised and battered severely, and put in trash bags, and then placed in a trash can in the kitchen of this home, where she slowly suffocated to death. This... Uh, that's why I said this was, I mean, it's about the most depraved act I've ever heard. The fact that you know this means that there was a confession, I'm assuming. The fact that I know this means that there was evidence and a court case. And the reason why I, I didn't talk yet about or the why I'm doing it this way is next I'm going to get to the defendants. Okay. There are multiple defendants. So I it would have been hard to initially start off and tell you who did which act. Mm-hmm. So now let me move to the defendants, and I'll talk about their discovery, Mm -hmm. the trials that followed, because there's a lot that happens with this case. There were five perpetrators in this crime. So let me describe them and how they came to be involved in these crimes. Lamaricus Davidson was the person who lived at the Chipman house. His girlfriend had just broken up with him after he physically assaulted her, and he was very angry. He was also broke. He had no job other than a legal job of selling drugs. He had no vehicle. He was on parole for a previous carjacking and under suspicion for several other crimes with a long criminal history. Lamaricus is really going to be the ringleader here. Latalvis Cobbins was Davidson's half-brother and had come to visit the Chipman house and visit his brother with his girlfriend, Vanessa Coleman, and his friend, George Thomas. Thomas and Cobbins both had prior criminal histories as well. Thomas reportedly came from a house where his father was physically abusive and a drug addict. The three were jobless, broke, and homeless. And they were also said to be overstaying their welcome with Davidson, whose temper was beginning to flare. I guess what had happened was that they came down for the New Year's to visit. And maybe they came right before the New Year. And now we're talking about six or seven. They've been there for a week in a small house. You've got four people who don't have jobs. One of them has just, you know, had a, a breakup. You know, this, things are not going well in this house. And then there's a fifth person. Eric Boyd was the fifth defendant. He was also a local homeless drug addict who Davidson was friends with, I believe, through his drug dealing and connections. Again, 
You've got Boyd and Davidson. They live near the Chipman house. And then you've got Davidson's half-brother, Cobbins, who came with his girlfriend, Vanessa, and with his friend, George Thomas. That comprises the five people. A little bit more about the investigation, too, now that we know the defendants. Just a few more details before I get to how they were apprehended. Shannon's Toyota 4Runner was discovered by her own family on January 8th, just two blocks from the Chipman house. Listen to this. Shannon's family had called to report her missing, but the police told them they'd have to search for her themselves. What? I suppose because it was too soon and she was an adult. She's a 21-year-old. The thing about this philosophy, Amy, is that there's a good reason, right, to wait. Sometimes you can't distribute every resource to every person who goes missing for a couple hours. However, the problem with this philosophy is that most assailants who abduct, rape, and murder their victims will do so very quickly. So if you have to wait for 24 hours to file a report, your loved one is long gone. Mm. Um, And, you know, Shannon's family was understandably upset because if they had deployed earlier, remember I said Shannon was alive for about 24 hours in that house. She could have been saved. Fingerprint evidence in the car was traced to the ringleader, Lamaricus Davidson. Because he had a record. Yeah, even though he wiped the car pretty well, he actually left like one fingerprint on a piece of paper or something he touched in there. He had wiped it well otherwise, though. The forerunner was only two blocks from his house. It wasn't like, I mean, he didn't put it out front, but it's not like they put any distance behind it. We should also talk about the fact that this was a carjacking, but what happens when... Um, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Keep the motive those, is... Yeah, yeah. Keep these questions. Well, remember, Lamaricus was uh, a convicted carjacker, but we'll talk about why this one may have gone wrong and what the different theories are. So police then got a search warrant for his house based on finding his fingerprint. And on January 9th, while executing the search, they discovered Shannon's body and were led to the other perpetrators who were also known to be at the home. The house of cards fell pretty quickly for this crew. They found her body in the trash can at the home. Yes. One of the police officers describes how when they walked in, he was actually nervous. He saw the trash can. He thought one of them was hiding in there. So mm. he pulled the, you know, the lid off with his gun out ready. And I mean, he was obviously horrified, not what he expected mm-hmm. to find. The investigation part was pretty simple. Like I said, it led very quickly to these suspects. And there's never been any doubt about the five being involved. What does come into play and what will come into play is what their roles were. It's very clear that Lamaricus Davidson, I'm going to go through the evidence, was the ringleader. The others get a little fuzzy. Regardless, all five of them were arrested and all five suspects went to trial separately. Did they find Chris's body at this point? They actually, I should have said this. Thank you. Good question, Amy. They found Chris's body first. They found his on the 8th before anyone found any evidence of Shannon. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So, I mean, he was found quickly. He was in plain sight, I think, um, unfortunately. I watched so many things with the parents. I was so concerned about them, to be honest. And Miss Newsom said that she really wanted to, she wanted to hug him goodbye. And Mm. they wouldn't let her. They would not let her. They wouldn't open the bag because of the condition of his body. So she hugged hugged a body bag, as she described, which is just heartbreaking. No mother should ever have to endure this. Let me talk about these suspects then. And, And again, they all went to trial and... I'm sorry, you said they were tried separately or together? Tried separately. Okay. They all tried to minimize their culpability, but here's what the evidence showed. Davidson, Cobbins, and Boyd were the initial carjackers, the three of them. Boyd was driving, while Davidson and Cobbins, the two brothers, got out and committed the carjacking and kidnapping. Boyd and Thomas were involved in the attack and murder of Chris. They had left the house with him, and they came back at some point in blood-soaked clothing. Whether... 
It's true, but there are details that have there are consistent details. Okay. So they're all lying about certain acts, but there are there's a core number of facts on which everyone agrees. Those two definitely left the house. What's disputed about them is whether or not they left the house of their own volition or if Lamaricus Davidson ordered them to take Chris okay. Newsom out and do it. There's also DNA evidence. Cobbins and Davidson, the two brothers, raped Shannon, uh, though they couldn't be sure if they caused the injuries to Shannon's vaginal area that were inflicted by the kicking or the object. <sighs> I read that prosecutors suspected that Coleman did this. This is Vanessa Coleman, Cobbins' girlfriend. But I never saw the proof. And I dug really deep on this. And the only thing I could think of was maybe her being mad and not not understanding or not seeing this as a rape, but seeing this her boyfriend is raping this woman. But maybe in her mind, she's viewing this as, you know, this woman Mm -hmm. who stepped in and maybe she did something to hurt her. Mm -hmm. I don't know, though. I honestly didn't see the proof on that one. It seemed Davidson was the one who murdered Shannon. Uh, But his brother helped, and they wrapped Shannon in plastic bags and put her in the trash can where she suffocated to death. These were the things that were pretty undisputable. There will be a number of facts that will be uh, disputable, though. Let me talk about the verdicts now. Lamaricus Davidson was found guilty of all charges and sentenced to death. Good. One thing on which this group of liars was actually consistent about was that Davidson was the instigator. He was the person who killed Shannon. He violently raped her. And plus, every bit of forensic evidence they have supported this. Great. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we don't favor the death penalty, but in this case, good. His brother, Latalvis Cobbins, who was also very clearly, he, he also raped Shannon and helped kill her, was found guilty of murder and rape and sentenced to life in prison. At his trial, Cobbins testified that he told Shannon he would release her, would talk to his brother if she gave him oral sex and that. She just agreed, okay, I'll do it. So basically, he made it seem like, oh, he just invited her to give her oral sex, and she just accepted this invitation. His testimony, I watched it. 45 minutes I watched of it. It's disgusting. It was obvious to every single person that he was so clearly lying and minimizing his guilt, making it like... He asked her, and she was like, yeah, sure. Yes, and he also, he and his girlfriend also said that they were just afraid of Lamaricus and that they couldn't escape, and so... He told Shannon that, I'm so sorry, we're also being held here hostage. But in another breath, he also admitted that everyone left the house but him and his girlfriend. They could have easily left or escaped. He was a liar. It was very obvious um, at his trial, and that's why he was convicted. Mm -hmm. He was spared the death penalty. But I thought about their parents. So Chris Newsom and Shannon Christian's parents went to every trial. They never missed a court date. They were there. At one point, I remember reading something like Gary Christian were, had attended 387 court dates. Oh my God. Uh, and I've heard parents say this is the last. Remember we talked about Dominique Dunn and Dominic Dunn? Mm-hmm. This is the last bit of business you have to do for your child. So mm-hmm. they felt like they needed to be there. But the details, having to watch that guy, when I had to watch him testify, I don't know how, how they didn't, someone didn't leap over. I mean, it was just horrible. Okay. George Thomas was also found guilty of the murders and sentenced to life in prison. And we'll come back to him in a little bit. Vanessa Coleman, the only female in the group, also the youngest. She was age 18, where I believe the others were in their early 20s. She was found guilty of lesser charges and not murder, but she was sentenced to 53 years in prison. Hmm. And finally, Eric Boyd, this is interesting, he couldn't be tied to the crimes through any forensic evidence. They knew that he was there. They, uh, they had evidence that he had helped with the carjacking. Mm-hmm. So he was convicted in 2008 as an accessory to a fatal carjacking and then afterwards for aiding Lamaricus Davidson as a fugitive. He got 18 years for this crime. And this was in the federal system. Mm-hmm. This is a very bizarre turn. So he got charged federally. 
for a carjacking gone wrong. He gets 18 years because he can't be tied to the murders or the rapes. But then in a very new turn of events or an interesting turn of events, the state charged Boyd in 2018 with the murders and aggravated rape, among other charges. They used the testimony of one of the other accomplices, George Thomas. George Thomas was already convicted of the murder and the rape of Chris Newsom. And Thomas actually testified that it was Boyd who raped and killed Newsom. <laughs> Boyd was found guilty on almost all the charges and sentenced to life in prison to be served following his sentence of 18 years. All now, on the testimony of a convicted murderer? Here's what happened. There was a lot of urging from the Newsom family. They always felt that Eric Boyd was much more involved and they didn't believe the sentence was appropriate that he got. And so they actually asked George Thomas. It was a, kind of a collusion between the, the prosecutor and the Newsom family to testify against him. So it was at the Newsom's urging that he, he did so. We'll talk about what kind of deal, because he got a new deal, obviously. And this may sound like double jeopardy, right? I mean, a little bit. You get tried in one system, mm -hmm. two crimes. But these are two separate systems. You have the federal and state system, and they're two different crimes. Mm -hmm. This is carjacking versus murder. So Eric Boyd actually got a, a much higher sentence than, you know, next to Lamarcus Davis. This tragedy does not end here, though. Because four of these verdicts were thrown out. Four of these verdicts were thrown out because the judge, Richard Baumgartner, was addicted to opiates and was using them during these trials. <sighs> He was getting drugs, you're going to believe this, from the participants in his own drug court programs. <laughs> and one of the women he also coerced into having sexual relationships with him. This judge had begun this famous drug court program. And then I think, I think he had an injury or an accident and became addicted mm -hmm. to pain pills. And the addiction just escalated. Apparently, it was also kind of known that he was using. And there was some urging for him to resign, but he didn't. It was discovered afterwards, though. And once they discovered it, he was forced to resign. He got some type of non-custodial slap on the wrist. And after his disbarment was final in 2011, Judge John Kerry Blackwood ordered new trials for these defendants. Here's why this gets more complicated. The state appealed to the Tennessee Supreme Court because they didn't want to, obviously, they didn't want to lose their convictions. And the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned Blackwood's decision to order new trials for Davidson, Cobbins, and Thomas on certain grounds, but left open the possibility that Blackwood could choose other grounds for retrials, you know, complicated legalese. Then in June 2012, Blackwood, this is the judge, invoked the 13th juror rule. Have you ever heard of this, Amy? Because I hadn't. I have not. The 13th juror rule essentially states that judges act as 13th juror after a verdict and affirm that verdict. They have to say they've heard everything and they agree. They affirm the verdict. And if they don't agree, though, that doesn't mean that it's grounds for a mistrial. It's not. It's not that they agree. It's that they affirm that all the testimony's been heard. They affirm the trial's gone. But it's a technical. I mean, it's it's a technicality, yeah. but. They affirm that they've heard all the same evidence that the jury has heard. And that's what it really Shouldn't means. we just assume that a judge always hears all the same evidence that a jury hears? I think so. Yeah. But <laughs> okay. this is where, why um, this is why Blackwood affirmed it, because he stated that he couldn't act as 13th juror because he came in 
after oh, the verdicts. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. So he comes in after the verdicts. And so he said, I can't act as 13th juror, at least in Coleman and Thomas's cases. Mm-hmm. Blackwood and the prosecutors get into a heated debate too. The prosecutors are like, you seem to be getting very deeply involved in this case. You're invoking the 13th juror. You want retrials. He also seemed a little bit, he insisted on presiding over those trials himself. The prosecutors asked for a, re- a recusal. And he said, no, he had a hearing for it. And then he allowed them a second hearing for a recusal. And then again said, no, I'm still not recusing myself. I still think I'm fair. Ultimately, Blackwood was removed from the case and a new judge was appointed. But the new judge granted retrials for Thomas and Coleman. What was his vested interest in the case? They said that he liked the publicity. It was a very Uh. high publicity case. And he insisted on certain actions and certain movements that made it very clear that he intended to preside over these cases where he didn't need to. Mm -hmm. They just felt that he was too involved. Okay, I was afraid there was going to be some other underground thing. No, but at this point, Chris and Shannon's families are getting so upset because this has become, this is taking all this time. There's motions and the judge is letting them have these hearings. You know, at this point, they're like- Just let the family heal. They're like, just recuse yourself. Just put another judge in. We want to get through this. We've just gone through all these trials and now we have to go through two retrials. I mean, at least it wasn't all of them, but I'm sure that was not a comfort to them at the time. So let's talk about what happened at the retrials. Vanessa Coleman was convicted again Um, But she received a much more beneficial decision this time. So if you recall, she got 53 years in the original case. This time she got 35 years with parole eligibility. She went up for parole in 2014. And this was after she was convicted again in 2012. Did she get it? Did she get parole? No. Okay. So she did, not only did she not get parole, there was such a strong, so many people showed up to protest her parole. I mean, we're talking about a couple years after the conviction. George Thomas was convicted again and received a life sentence again. But then, like I had told you, in a later turn of events, the prosecution reached a new plea deal with Thomas. And in exchange for his testimony against Eric Boyd, his new deal would reduce his sentence to 50 years and remove the mention of a sex crime from his prison record. Is it 50 years with parole at like a certain point? I'm just saying, like, it's not that sweet of a deal. You're still going to be 70-something years old. Well, the important part to him, actually, was removing the sex crime uh, designation from his record. Oh, because when he's in prison, then that, okay. He said that, I don't, I don't know what happened. I didn't read any news reports, but he said that it was a painful thing having a sex crime conviction. He wanted that removed. So okay. basically, so no, it's probably to help his stay in prison. That's exactly okay. what it was. Okay. I mean, I think there's a chance for parole and a chance you get out, but that that's much more yeah. important practically in prison. Yeah. You know that. Um, mm-hmm. We've talked about the role of sex offender or what the sex offender designation will get you. Mm-hmm. So then Lamaricus Davidson, the ringleader, files a motion for a new trial based on the fact that Thomas testified that he was not present when Chris Newsom was killed. But after consideration, the judge denied it, saying that there was sufficient evidence to show that Davidson, at the very least, ordered the murder of Chris Newsom, and that's why he was responsible. So Lamaricus Davidson, his um, sentence will stay in place as is. Let me talk now about the aftermath. The house was demolished. The Chipman house, where the crimes happened, was demolished and a memorial erected in its place for Shannon and Chris. Mm. There's been a scholarship created and awarded by the University of Tennessee yearly in Shannon's name. A Little League baseball tournament is held yearly for Chris, as well as a scholarship also awarded in his name. Gary Christian, if you look at any of these trials, the camera's always on him. He was the most visible, angered person in trial in the courtroom. He held a picture of Shannon every day, rocked back and forth. 
I mean, made all, I mean, he's the most angry person you can see. He became obsessed, he said, with getting revenge on the perpetrators of his daughter's heinous crime, as I can imagine any father would. Interestingly, he forms, he formed a motorcycle club to try and meet people who would help him take revenge. He felt like if I got a bunch of tough bikers, get them invested, they're going to help me do this. Like, I just need a gang is what he really thought. You know, he was a very distraught man afterwards. The interesting thing is that he did. He found he formed this this motorcycle gang, but he wound up back at church. He had also he was a man of God, but he said after Shannon's death, after this, there was no more God. There was no more religion. He didn't believe. He wound up back at church in 2017 when his friends invited him and his wife. And this was his new wife. Shannon's mother and him, who had been married before Dina Christian, they had split up, which often happens with children who are murdered. It becomes too much. He said that he, his friends invited him. He didn't want to go to church, but his wife kind of said, we should go, it's time. And he said that day, the things that the preacher talked about resonated with him like immediately. And he said, I began talking to God that day. I came away literally with a restored faith, amazingly. And he said, I just missed it. He's like, I couldn't be this angry anymore. I, I didn't know what to, how to live with my anger. And now he travels the country speaking at churches and other gatherings. I've seen him talk. There's a 20-minute documentary about his faith restoration. I thought it was great. I watched that as well. So something good happened to him afterwards. There were also a couple of other things. The Shannon Christian Act was passed in 2014 to restrict the admissibility of character damaging attacks on the victims. Why that happened? Lamaricus Davidson in his trial tried to say that basically Chris and Shannon were drug users and they came over to buy drugs from him and Shannon willingly consented to sex. It was ludicrous. It was disgusting. And that's what, I mean, those laws are already in place, but they weren't strict enough. So now they have this act seriously restricting what kind of damage they can inflict on the victims. The Chris Newsom Act was also passed in 2014, and this was created to allow a new judge on a case to act as 13th juror following a jury's unanimous verdict. Okay, good. To remove that block. All right, our thoughts and opinions, Amy. Is there really any thought or opinion to have on this case? I would like to address the criminological theories that might explain this behavior. This is so complicated and so difficult. It's more difficult to do because the actions of these five people seem inexplicable. I almost don't want to do it because it's there. It's just too heinous and too disgusting to try let me, to. Let me ask you before you get into that. Like, what is the motive? How did things turn so violent? That's a great question. And what they had said or the way they explained this was that they really were. This really was a carjacking attempt, even though Cobbins said his brother and Eric Boyd tricked me to going out and robbing with them. I had no idea what we were going to do. We'll take that part. You know, he's a liar. Okay, whatever. But how yes. does it turn so vicious? What they said was that while they were, when they jumped out of the car to literally carjack them, another car was coming straight at them like headlights. And so while they intended to get her out of the car and get him like away, they just panicked and shoved them in the car. This is what they said. So just drop them off somewhere. Exactly. Or if you really need to get rid of the eyewitnesses, why torture? I can't say for sure if it was a carjacking gone wrong. I mean, Chris Newsom's mom said this may have been a this may have started out as an attempted carjacking, but it turned into something hateful. And she actually believed, and this was a sentiment, I won't even delve into this, but she believed it was racial because these five defendants were black and Shannon and Christian were white. And she believed this was a hate crime and other people had said, it's possibly a hate crime. There's no evidence. There was of that. no evidence of that. No. So they weren't charged with a hate crime because, look, the prosecutor said, I can't find evidence of this. Mm -hmm. 
She believed, uh, Chris Newsom's mom believed that this actually kind of devolved into a hate crime, though. Why rape him? Were they homosexual, you think? Like, was that just to hurt him? So I thought about that, too. The reason why they had thought Eric Boyd, who at first they didn't have any proof was involved, might have been Chris Newsom's attacker is because they found some male pornography on Eric Boyd's phone. So he was the only one they could. Well, but who did the DNA match? It didn't. There wasn't a DNA match. Not for Chris Newsom. They set fire to his body. They, you know, they, it wasn't, they weren't able to match the DNA. So there was. But I just wonder, was it to humiliate and brutalize Chris or was it for sexual gratification? I think it was to humiliate and brutalize him. I do. I really think. I think that you have five seriously angry people. Like, I I really believe these are five of the most. I mean, joblessness, homelessness, drug use. None of them seem like they have great backgrounds. And what I would say here is that I see a lot of evidence of antisocial personality. And I know that's not normally where I would go with this. Uh, So there's two things. First of all, Lamaricus Davidson meets almost all the criteria on the hair checklist for psychopathy. Lack of empathy, lack of realistic goals, prone to boredom, parasitic lifestyle, shallow affect, irresponsibility, juvenile record, poor behavioral controls, and on and on. I went through the checklist. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's trauma in his early life that played a role. But I think that he is the most clear example of almost a perfect antisocial personality disorder. But I see evidence. And he was the ringleader. Yes. And I do believe if it wasn't for his instigation, that this probably would not have happened. I'm not saying they wouldn't have committed other crimes. I believe the rest also have antisocial traits. And let me just give you an example. George Thomas, this was the friend of Cobbins. He didn't seem like he was an instigator. He seemed like he went along with this. While on the phone, though, with his girlfriend from prison, he responded to her question like, why did you call the police? Why would you participate? And he said coldly, shoulda, coulda, woulda, like couldn't have cared less. Um, very flat affect. Latalvis Cobbins, as I said, lied and lied on the stand. He has a history of juvenile delinquency parasitic lifestyle, lack of remorse, lack of realistic goals. Again, he fits antisocial personality. Now, Vanessa Coleman, I wasn't able to find that much about her background, but let me tell you what she tried to claim at trial. She tried to claim that she was also a victim, that they were threatening her. She was forced to stay. She didn't participate at all, but she couldn't leave. She wasn't free to leave. She was terrified, she said, scared for her life. Okay. Then she she leaves with Cobbins and they wind up living together afterwards. Even after though, the murders. After the murders, they're living together again. And also she had um, also stated at one point that they all left the house and she was alone with Shannon and she could have released her then, but she didn't. No, nope, she said that too. But then investigators find um, a diary in, that she wrote in after the murders. And some of the passages she wrote, How interesting is your life? I bet it won't compare to mine because I love my life. And I've had one hell of an adventure since I've been in the big Tennessee. I love the fun adventures and lessons I've learned. It's going to be a long, interesting year. (laughs) Now, does this sound like someone who is terrified or scared or remorseful? This is not evidence per se, but it it certainly indicates state of mind. I think that you had five antisocial people here who had strain. I was thinking strain the whole time. I know you were. I could tell. So I think that's what it was. I think the strain or the stress is not an excuse. It's no. just an explanation to help us understand. When we go to criminological theories, it, they're never excuses. It's explanations. How do we explain this? So again, sorry, strain theory for those who don't know or haven't heard it in other episodes. It's when individuals lack proper coping mechanisms to deal with various strains in their life. And clearly, these individuals have, you know, a a really difficult past. You know, they're broke, they're homeless, they're drug users, and 
they're coping. They don't have the proper coping mechanisms to deal with all the stressors in their lives. And I think that they took their anger and frustration out on Shannon and Chris, probably also because they saw these two seemingly happy people. Nice car, happy kids. Happy you know. life, anger towards those. Of so course. it's displaced anger is what yep. it probably is, if we had to guess. I think strain and antisocial explains this. I mean, nothing can explain it. As nothing. I said, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's the best attempt I have. Social control theory a little bit. I thought that too. So why social control? Lack of pro-social attachments, commitments, involvements. They all seemed like they were just not, they didn't come from strong backgrounds. They didn't have strong ties to the community. They weren't involved in pro-social activities. No, not at all. Right. And I also think there's some uh, low self-control there as well when we're talking about control. Um, You know, the impulsiveness, the behavioral controls here. Let's talk about our just final conclusions about the criminal justice system. Lamaricus got the death penalty, I think, appropriately. And I was really surprised. And I can't say, I can't lie. I was a little bit happy when you said good. It, that was, it's funny. That was a reflex. But I am not a proponent of the death penalty I, at all. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I but don't. if we're going to use the pe- death penalty. Yeah, if we're going to use it. But I still am. It's funny. After I said that, I was like, where did that come from? Because I am pretty strongly opposed to the death came penalty. from your retributive, retributivist <laughs> side hanging out with me. Again, the reason I'm I'm opposed to the death penalty is because you can never be 100 percent certain you can't get a life back. The right? fallibility issue. Yeah, but I don't know this. This case invokes such an emotional response that there's no other way to respond. Then there was overwhelming evidence. There's no doubt about his involvement. Um, and I have to say, he got the death penalty appropriately. But if I'm a true retributivist, then the, he's getting off easy. Because, yeah. you know, an eye for an eye in true retribution. Yep. I believe Cobbins also should have gotten the death penalty. I know you probably wouldn't think that. I can handle life in prison, but I believe he was almost equally as culpable as his brother was. I didn't do as deep of a dive as you, so it's hard to say just well, from the summary. You'll but... take life in prison, right? That's... yeah. I mean, you don't think that's inappropriate, life in prison for his involvement. I do not think that's inappropriate, no. Thomas got a new deal of 50 years, so he'll be a very old man if he ever gets out. I can also live with this, though, though I don't think that I would have relied on his testimony for the the Boyd conviction. That's my only problem here. No, because they was cut a deal. I'm not sure that Thomas... I mean, he's culpable, but I'm not sure what he did. And so I was a little uncomfortable in the end, too, going, I, I, wish, I, I wish I knew. I won't, you won't know. He went along with these gruesome crimes, and he had, a, he had a role, and he never said stop. And, you know, I think he was very much involved in the murder of Chris Newsom. But I'm not sure I would have relied on his testimony for anything. Boyd wound up getting life in prison. And because of, I'm not positive if he pulled the trigger in Chris's case, I don't, I don't know how to say this. I don't think it, it should have been based on Thomas's testimony. Though I do believe that he was the trigger man, and I do believe he sexually assaulted Chris Newsom. So I can live with um, life in prison for him. I'm not going to feel bad about it, actually. Nope, me neither. Okay. Vanessa Coleman, claiming she was a victim, too, who had ample opportunities to escape to free Shannon, who stayed with Cobbins after, who took, by the way, I didn't mention this, but she also took Shannon's clothing, jewelry, and other items for herself, and who wrote that she loved her life got 35 years. And though I prefer 53 years, I'm only going to be okay with this sentence if she has to serve the, the full 35. She went up for parole in 2004. She'll still be quite young when she gets out, though. I don't like it. That's what I'm... <laughs> yeah. I, no, she will still be... She'll, yeah. she'll be in her 50s. You know, I don't, I don't like that. 
But uh, I would also want to know what did she do in prison all those years? Absolutely. Like I'd want to see, is there any sign of her trying to better herself or taking responsibility for being remorseful? Do you know that I agree with what you're saying? Can she change? She was young. She was 18. As I said, I still think she's very negligible. And I, I actually still prefer 53 years. I don't think she'll get parole. I think she'll serve 35. And so possibly okay, be okay with that. I'll let you know in 35 years. None of them showed one ounce of remorse. In fact, it was also reported that Eric Boyd would stare down Gary Christian. One reporter said, or a couple reports said, he would mouth to him, bring it on. What? It was, it's weird and I can't verify it. But what I can tell you, if that's not for sure, not one of them showed any remorse for what they did. No tears, two. no remorse, nothing. All right. I the Talvis Cobbins cried for himself on the stand, but he wasn't crying for Shannon. He was crying for himself. Disgusting. I mean, we're at the end now. We've you know, tried to explain this a little bit with theory, even though it's really hard to explain. Go look at some pictures of puppies and kittens. Yeah, this, some self-care. This, I, is... this was a hard one. I want to say that I had thought about doing this case on a couple occasions, and a couple of our listeners wrote in, on, and I put it aside because I couldn't handle it at the time. And I came back to it because, I don't know, I, you know what, I came back to it because it was, it was important. And, and the, these two should be remembered. And their families are so brave. Their families are the bravest, strongest people I know. I have to commend them. And there was so much that came afterwards, you know, unfortunately, but good things that came. So I commend the families here. And I hope we really don't see a crime this gruesome, you know, again. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Megan, for highlighting this important, yet heartbreaking, but important case. All right. Thank you, Amy. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include the documentary Faith on Trial, the Gary Christian story, several articles by KnoxNews.com, the True Crime Times, and the Sentinel Sun.